Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account, go to squarespace.com slash twip. This week on TWIP, medium format DSLRs, Nikon projects, and TWIP gets twitty with it. All that and more on episode number 155 of This Week in Photography. Welcome back to another episode of This Week in Photography. I'm your host, Frederick Van Johnson. This is an interesting show because there's lots of changes going on behind the scenes at This Week in Photo. And uh, a couple of our our insider folks are here to kind of talk about a little bit of it as, as best we can without letting the cat out of the bag yet. But uh, we're going to use this show kind of to, to bring the TWIP army up to speed on what we're doing um, a little bit and uh, give you a, a peek into some things that are happening with regard to how the show is going to be produced and all that stuff. And then um, we're, of course, we're going to talk about news and all that good stuff. So it should be a very interesting show. So, uh, so listen tight. So before we get to any of that, let's, uh, let's say hello to the folks that are joining me today. First up is Mr. Ron Brinkman. Hey, Ron. Good morning. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Yesterday, uh, we, we spoke a little bit yesterday. You were saying that uh, the weather was gnarly down in Southern California. How dare Oh, it? just, you know, the <laughs> usual June gloom, as we call it. It's a little bit overcast right now and kind of cool, actually. Oh, so you had to put on you had to put on a short sleeve shirt instead of the tank top. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and speaking of weather and, and me being jealous of locations on the show with us as well is Mr. Joseph Lenaski. That's Skyping it in from the Hawaiian Islands. Hey, Joseph. Aloha. Hey, I, I heard <laughs> I crickets there for a second. <laughs> How are you doing down there? What's, what's going on? It's good. You're going to hear birds. You're going to hear wild turkeys running around outside, which I never knew were on the big island of Hawaii until this trip. Uh, but you should hear all kinds of, of wildlife running around in my backyard here. Wait a minute. Wild turkey, the beverage, or real wild turkeys? You know, I saw the real uh, birds running by and immediately thought, oh, look. There's the beverage, but no, it is the real things. The real birds are running around. My kids have been having a blast chasing them. They seem to think that they're here simply for their amusement, and um, my son is convinced that we need to catch one for dinner. So, hey, I, I think you should go. I think you should go, uh, caveman, and do it. <laughs> I dare you. That'd be some photos right there, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> all right, guys. <laughs> I could just see <laughs> the news headlines. Local ph- photographer. Arrested for bludgeoning turkey to death, <laughs> or worse, or worse, yeah. local wild turkey pecks lo- uh, visiting photographer to death, or something. <laughs> well, it's funny because there are a lot of them, and my little boy goes after them with a stick, and he, you know, they can outrun him, and but he'll chase one, and then two, and then suddenly there's ten of them that he's chasing at a time, and I keep watching this, thinking if they ever figure out that there's more of them than there are. He's in trouble. <laughs> yeah, they'll unionize and it'll be all be over after that. <laughs> all right, before we move on, let's give a quick nod to our sponsor. This Week in Photography is brought to you by our friends over at Squarespace.com. They're a fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. Or, or blog. 
And uh, like we've been saying over the past couple of weeks, they've announced this new feature called Social Widgets that allow you to integrate Twitter um, in all manner of ways, bring Flickr into your accounts or into your blog or website, and then also a native RSS widget that lets you pull in feeds from pretty much any site on the web. Um, and uh, it's all integrated into the Squarespace backend engine. And that backend engine is easy to use. It's a, an easy-to-use UI for, for for building pages and picking from uh, hundreds of design templates that they have to go ahead and kind of make the site look the way you want. It's a modular kind of feel with everything in there from forums to photo galleries to all kinds of stuff. So basically you just, you know, you sit down at your computer, drag and drop a couple of things, pick a theme and keep rolling. And then if you're lucky, you'll have a, th- have a site that looks somewhat like, uh, apertureexpert.com when you're done, which is, which is <laughs> Joseph's site. That's still humming along on Squarespace, right, Joseph? Yeah, that's right. I love Squarespace and you know, I haven't had time to integrate all those new widgets in there yet. Um, but I'm really looking forward to it. There are some cool new pieces in there. Awesome. So if you'd like to, you know, just bang around with Squarespace. It's, there's no obligation. You just uh, head over to squarespace.com forward slash TWIP, T-W-I-P. You don't need your credit card. Um, you can try it out, build your website. And then if you decide that you like it when you purchase and actually, uh, and, you know, sort of seal the deal, you'll get 10% off when you enter the offer code T-W-I-P. Once again, that's squarespace.com forward slash TWIP. All right, guys, let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the some of the changes that I did a little foreshadowing on in the beginning there. Um, first up, we can't exactly say that, you know, where the location of this new thing is. And it's basically it's a blog. So it's, it's a new home for the website. Um, it's more than just a blog. It, it is. Ron, what is it? What is it? You've seen I, it. I've seen it, but I'm not sure how much you want to reveal about it. But, you well, know, I, just I, a high I, what level, I, what I just say, kind of, from a high level. What, what, well, is it? what, I, what I will say is that uh, for those of our regular listeners who've uh, been listening a lot and then occasionally tune into the, the website as well, um, I, I personally don't think the experience was somewhat equivalent uh, in terms of richness of content. Uh, there was clearly a room for improvement on an online presence there. And uh, that's all I'll say. Yes. Uh, so we, we clearly improved it. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> Joseph, you, I gave you a, a quick run through of what, uh, what this new thing looks like, the new site. What, uh, what, do, what do you think without, you know, of course, pulling the white sheet off of it? I think my first reaction was, uh, where'd you steal this from? (laughs) 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 This is obviously not what I'm used to. So no, it's uh, going to be amazing. It's going to be fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're really, all of us are really excited about the site and just, just to kind of, put a, put, put some perspective on it right now. The site is at this, it's at, uh, where, where's the site at right now? Twiplog. <laughs> it's at twiplog.com. Twiplog.com is where the site lives. So that's changing. And when we launch the site, we'll have a little post up there that redirects you to the new site. Um, and the, uh, the, the new presence is like, like Ron was saying, it is, it's been several, several months in the making and it is a, an experience that will, basically become the hub for the show. Um, whereas right now it's kind of in the ether. You kind of get a little bit about the show. If you go to Twiplog and the show notes are a little bit behind. Um, and, or if you want to get the, the feed for the show, you go to someplace else, all these different things. So basically we've, uh, we've brought in some heavy guns to 
kind of uh, streamline the whole thing and make this experience into something that is is worthy of our listeners. So we're hoping that you will like it. And if you want to be notified of when this thing goes live, because there will be, uh, you'll need to sign up, and it's there's no fee, but you'll need to uh, get your place in line there. If you want to do that, you'll need to uh, follow us on Twitter. And we have a brand new Twitter account, and that's, get your pins ready, This Week in Photo on Twitter. So twitter.com forward slash this week in photo. Ron, you're following right now, right? You know, we, right when you were saying that, I'm like, oh, I, I guess I need to go follow that. <laughs> Funny doing the same thing. <laughs> like, oh, crap, I should follow my account. <laughs> yeah, and the cool thing about this week in photo is um, the, the Twitter feed is that uh, all of the hosts, the regulars, including the folks that you hear today and the folks that you are used to on the show, will have access to tweet on that account. So you'll be seeing tweets from all over the place so it's uh it should be and they'll all be photography related of course but it's uh it's it's our voice it's our cumulative harmonious voice from the this weekend photography crew and uh, i'm i'm following you're here yeah, now you are <laughs> i've been following for like at least 30 seconds <laughs> nice nice yeah it's funny this thing this weekend photo has been relatively under wraps the twitter feed we haven't we haven't i haven't done any tweets about it or anything and it's already up to i think it's over 200 at least close to 200 followers right now, just kind of just sitting there. So, so I'm looking forward to using this weekend photo and the new presence as a way to kind of keep in touch with the, uh, with the audience and, uh, keep the conversation going between shows. So definitely follow the Twitter feed. And soon as we pull the sheet off of the site, you will be the first to know. Yeah, It's also, you know, we, we definitely do like to get feedback on the show and on the website and everything. And, this should make it a lot easier for people to do just a single uh, piece of, uh, you know, single tweet to make a suggestion or ask a question. Whereas in the past, I know people would constantly sort of uh, ping all of us as a group. And by, by the time you get done typing in all of our names, you don't really have much left out of that 140 <laughs> characters to, you can say, to hi. say anything pertinent. So hopefully this, uh, this will help with that too. Yeah, yeah, it will. And uh, it's exciting. It's exciting. And the, the back end of all this stuff is, is really exciting too. The way that, that it was kind of put together allows all of us, you know, being in different parts of the world at any given moment to still keep up with this stuff and still blog and tweet and, and do all this stuff as if we were sitting in the same room. So it's kind of an, an extension of what we're doing with the podcast in terms of we're, you know, we're not in the same studio. We're all over the place. And now we can operate the web presence in much the same way. So exciting stuff. Superb. All right. Uh, let's jump into some news. Now the, the pre-announcements are out. Cat's out of the bag. Uh, let's talk a little bit about large format or medium format digital cameras. So we've touched on this, this, these topics and these new cameras that come out from time to time on the show. And there's some stories that we'll, that we'll link to in the show notes. The first of which is this Phase 1. So Phase 1 has announced a camera. Um, and, you know, Ron, I'm going to let you run with this uh, because you are, you know, I think you've read this. <laughs> and I skimmed it, but but the the, the gist of what I wanted to to, to kind of couch this whole conversation or this part of the conversation on is the audience for this week in photography is is advanced amateur, professional, and some amateur. So you know these are people that are passionate about photography but don't necessarily pay the bills with their photography. Some of them do, but the, I think the vast majority of people just have this passion for photography, um, and they're like lusting after the next lens or the next flash or the new tripod or you know the next piece of software that kind of thing. 
Um, but it, in, by and large, it's about the art. Um, so what I wanted to talk about with these things is, do these things even matter for photographers? I mean, these, and that's, I know that may be a bit of heresy, but these medium <laughs> format cameras, do they even matter for the crowd of people that are, that are listening to this show right now? Ron, what, what do you think? Uh, there's probably a few different answers to that question. I mean, to, to just sort of set the stage, uh, what sort of spurred this conversation is there were a couple of announcements, uh, phase one, uh, talking about some of their bodies and backs and, and Pentax is sort of this medium format, the 645D um, that they've announced. I don't think it's shipping for a while yet, but... You know, when you're you're talking about these kind of cameras, you're looking at a significant increase in price. Um, I think the the phase one setup will run you, you know, in in, in the range of fifty thousand dollars, say. Yeah. Um, yeah. So at a, at a move the decimal point basically from the top end digital SLR, right? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know, that's you know, of that fifty thousand dollars for the for the uh, phase one, for instance, forty thousand dollars of that is the sensor back. So clearly, that's what you're paying for here, right? I mean, you're going to be paying for lenses, but at some point, you're you're paying for these really, really large sensors that uh, are you know incredibly dense and pixel rich, um, but not cheap, you know. And and part of that is because they're just so expensive to manufacture. I'm sure part of it is because they don't have a huge market when you get into that price point, and so you're I mean, you're really targeting the the ultra high level professionals. Yeah, I met a I met a photographer in New York once. I was at there for for business and and uh she was telling me she's a model photographer and she only shoots with the medium format cameras. Um digital cameras. And you know, she's big famous New York photographer that you know, she in, in order for her to just, you know, walk in the room, it's going to be 30, 40 grand, that kind of person. So clearly those kind of people that is who the target. They can afford this and they can afford the the level of quality. But do they Joseph, do they do they even need this level of quality? I mean, it's it's is it is it like having a Ferrari that can go zero to sixty in point two seconds and then getting in Bay Area traffic with it? You know, is it <laughs> <laughs> does it matter? Yeah, it's that's a really good question, and I would love to hear the response from your friend um, who's shooting at that level. For me, I I have a hard time seeing why these days because I've even had to had to think about why twenty or twenty two megapixels is is required. You know, you can do a really, really big print off of a 12 megapixel image. And billboard prints, you go, okay, yeah, they're huge. They're many, many feet wide by many feet wide. But those are printed at pretty low resolution because they're viewed from a really far distance. So the stuff that needs to be printed at high res is basically magazine prints, magazine pages. And the biggest magazine pages are A4 or maybe a double A4 spread. Some really specialized magazines go bigger, but that's about it. And so I really do have a hard time understanding why you need the resolution. Uh, now, there is, a, there is a different look that you get, of course, off of these type of cameras. Um, just the compression, the different look that you have through the lens of, through a, um, an APS sensor up to a you know, half-size sensor to, to the quarter, whatever, the, the full-size sensors and so on, up to these really big ones. There is a different look that you get, so I can certainly appreciate that. But given that most studio photography, most fashion photography is done in a studio where the background is a seamless, I have a hard time understanding why it's really needed but yeah well, well she wasn't she wasn't there. in the studio all the time she's you know around on the streets of new york shooting and all that but her i asked i asked her that, that very question you know why do you need all those pixels and um 
Is she, uh, uh, the gist of her answer was for retouching so that when she's doing the retouching stuff, she can get into the DNA level and the, the you know, the dark matter between pixels and edit that stuff. And yeah, stuff. No, and that's, that's what I was going to say, too. I mean, I think everybody has sort of seen the level of, particularly for fashion photography, the level of retouching that goes on there. And the important thing to remember is if you are doing what tends to be done, which is sort of squeeze and stretch certain portions of the anatomy as is required, uh, you know, <laughs> be that uh, body or face, uh, the, the thing to remember is you are effectively scaling, localized scaling in a certain area, right? And if you do something where you increase, uh, you know, a, a chunk of pixels by 50% or 100% or, you know, scale scale certain areas up, scale other areas down. If you don't have that resolution to start with, you're going to notice it real quick. It's exactly the same as taking an image and blowing it up three or four times, and you start to see the pixels there too. So by having this really dense piece of information to start with, it means that you can do a whole lot more of this squeezing and stretching than you would normally be able to do without starting to have areas that look pixelated or soft and that kind of thing. And I think that's really wise because every one of these fashion photos is retouched so much that this is just a huge, huge safety net to have in place. Um, you know, because otherwise you're in a position where somebody says, well, I need to have this portion of the anatomy moved in some fashion. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you can't do it, if it you know becomes soft and, and uh, artifacty, then you've blown the shot, right? You need to go back and reshoot it again. So I can see that as much as anything... This is this is exactly for that reason. But that's not to say, just just to be clear with the with the listening audience, that's not to say that this these types of cameras is what you're shooting for, you know, so to speak, you know, because you you, the, you know, I'm looking at a bunch of magazines on my shelf right now, and I would argue that most, if not all, of the great images that I aspire to be able to take <laughs> in those images were taken with cameras, just like the one I have sitting in my bag right now. So it's not, I don't think, I think the message is not about the size of the sensor. It's about the talent of the photographer behind the behind the, the camera. Is that, do you agree with that, Ron? Well, uh, but I, I, you know, especially I hate to say it, a lot of times it's about the talent of the retoucher too. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. Uh, and this is giving the, re, you know, in some ways you can really make the case that, that these sensors are specifically uh, retoucher driven, right? The, the, the retoucher being the final artist on a lot of this stuff, and so, I mean, some of these things are dramatic, you know, the difference between what is shot and what is printed. Uh, and at some point, you can't deny the fact that the retoucher has become the primary artist, or at least, you know, equivalent uh, in terms of creative input to what comes out of the, out of the shot. And, you know, not, not even just retouching a model, but doing a whole lot of photo collage work and putting stuff together to tell a story. Yeah. A lot of advertising is about that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I come out of the visual effects world where that's all we do is... We shoot somebody in front of a blue screen and we um, shoot a different background and we shoot some miniatures and all those things get put together. And that happens in photography quite a bit as well. You're shooting components of the overall final composition, right? Yep, exactly. You shoot what you need in different areas and then you put it together. That brings up a good topic or a good point. Um, I tweeted, I think it was last year, um, about this article. I can't remember the name of the photographer. It was a famous photographer from Vanity Fair, I think it was. I, I don't know. Uh, some some famous longstanding print magazine. Um, but he basically was, uh, was all in the news for making the quote of saying that retouchers or retouchers were at least, if not more, critical to the final product than the photographer. 
So, yep. which, <laughs> which of course, as you might imagine, got a lot of photographers upset and made a lot of retouchers happy. But, you know, Joseph, where do you fall on that? I mean, I know notwithstanding the whole argument of should you even be touching pixels, but if you are going to touch pixels and you're going to print on a magazine cover, that's not a news thing. Is the retoucher more important than a photographer? I wouldn't go that far. Uh, they're obviously important, but someone has to make the image first before the retoucher can get their hands on it. You know, if you don't have, you, you can make an image just with a photographer. You can't make an image just with a retoucher. Yeah, but I don't want to see a lot of these models. I don't want to see them unretouched, right? So it's <laughs> it's, it's 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 a case of, which means if I get it's like coal, right? If I get that raw product, it's it's not. It's not ready for me to see yet, but, you know, you put it under the pressure of millions of years and, and lots of heat and you get that diamond out of there, then it becomes valuable. You know that. And, and, you know, just you could make that same argument saying that the photographer is not important. It's all about the model. Right. Mm hmm. You know, you can't you can't make a picture without the model. And uh, whereas, you know, my my uh, eight year old nephew could come in and take a photo of a really hot model and you know come up with something good. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's a team effort. Maybe <laughs> I, I think maybe it's a tripod. You got to have the model, the photographer, and the retoucher in order to get a good image out. You know, maybe you know, and, and not to not to go back to too much to the whole visual effects and and film side of things that I'm so familiar with. But you know, I think a lot of it is it sort of depends on the final product, what you're trying to do. You know, there are movies where the visual effects are the star, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I mean, you can't as much as I don't particularly like most of those movies either you can't deny the fact that a lot of movies do box office because of you know the trailer get, that gets cut together that's full of really cool visual effects yeah. um, and yeah. so for that particular movie you know the the post-production artists are a very key component to it uh and maybe the, the dp less so although again you need to have good solid stuff to work with but on other movies, you know, there may be no visual effects, and it's all about the director of photography in terms of the visuals and what you get out there. So it kind of depends on the product you're working with, too. Yeah. Sure. Well, let's switch a little bit to, to the optics of these things. So, you know, notwithstanding the fact that I can't afford to buy a $55,000 camera, but, you know, I'm looking at some of the shots that came off of this phase one um, of the, the this person that used it and took some some uh, some shots in San Francisco and it's uh I'm looking at the shots now and it's a kind of a vista of the city and they're zooming in on cars <laughs> from from you know that that look like little you can't really tell it's a car from far away and they're zooming in on parts of the picture and it looks like the resolution is enough to print at that level now is that I mean that's awesome and I want that I want that kind of resolving power in my digital SLR my 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 Nikon you know do you think we'll see that kind of stuff Joseph Well yeah because it's just it's getting bigger and bigger the Canon 1DS Mark IV the rumor is I think 35 megapixels mm -hmm. which kind of terrifies me because 22 meg megapixels is a lot to deal with when you know processing the files in After Photoshop or whatever so, yeah, um, it's definitely going there. We're seeing a rumor of 35, and this isn't that much farther from that. So, ouch. <laughs> yeah, 35 megapixels. That, the storage is not keeping up with that stuff, though. I mean, you know, I know, no, I know I the three-terabyte drives are coming out this year that you can put in a Drobo or, or you know, whatever device that you happen to have. But, you know, three terabytes is starting to look kind of like a floppy disk. No, when you're I don't at, agree with that. 35 megapixels. Come on, right? I mean, yeah, you know, if, but if I, you shoot I, on motor drive, you know, continuous high, you know, even a 32 gigabyte Lexar or SanDisk card is not going to be good enough, right? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, it feels, to me personally, it feels like 
four or five years ago, I was running at the ragged edge of being able to have all of my stuff online at one time, right? And I was, I was always, I was constantly running out of space. Uh, and I have now hit the point where I am, you know, disk space rich. I no longer feel like I'm running up against a wall. I feel like I've got enough space between, you know, the couple of internal hard drives and an external Drobo and all that, that, uh, it's gotten cheap enough for me to feel like I can buy more than enough disk space. Uh, I mean, I agree that, you know, everything is going to be a, a bit of a, a horse race back and forth, but overall it feels to me like, I don't know, it, it feels to me like the disk space cost per gigabyte or however you want to factor it is actually running ahead of the data generation okay. stuff if you're talking just stills. This is raw space. Yeah, yeah, I'll give you that. But yeah, let's, video is a whole different issue that we video, won't get yes. into. Video sets a whole different kind of a, a bar. And I think once you know, you're talking video and you're back to the mode where you, you can easily capture a lot more than you have space available and you know without spending a whole lot of money yeah well the the other piece that that brings up these gigantic file sizes is um and this is this is um going to be addressed in in some new content that's going to be on the new site that goes live that you'll be notified if you follow this week's mm-hmm. photo um but it uh, um is just backing this stuff up you know so yeah you can have two drives locally and you know connected through firewire or isada or whatever you know your your transport of choice is but the ideal backup kind of uh, uh, you know mixture of things is to have two uh, or a backup on site where you have your main and then you have a backup of that in case one of those fails. But then you need offsite, and if you're really crazy, you want it in the cloud too, Ron. I know, Ron, you've got a lot of your stuff in the cloud too. But if you're shooting, you know these these gigantic files and you're generating terabytes of data every day, you're going to be on a treadmill that's moving faster then you can shoot you so you won't be able to keep up with it and you're always going to be behind and at risk and that's just becoming more and more kind of in in sharp relief as we as we look at these new cameras that are producing these gigantic file sizes so how are you how are you planning on keeping up with this stuff Ron? and is your is your cloud backup solution keeping up with you yeah, so far it is i mean i think i've mentioned before i use backblaze uh as as a nice sort of a cloud solution but you know there's several options out there and the, the point being that it's sort of in the background is constantly uploading stuff to the cloud and then i have a local drobo where i do mirroring of my uh, you know or, or constant copies of my local disks and everything so you know i feel like i've got stuff in three places hopefully hopefully that's keeping it safe but yeah you know there's bandwidth becomes an issue when you're uploading a whole lot of stuff to the cloud um yeah you know it's it's true it's true that it's not a no-brainer yet, that's for sure, that you still have to be very aware of it. But it does feel like uh, as long as you're not really generating stuff on a daily basis, and I'm not, then it's not too hard to stay on top of it. But yeah, if you were, if you, you know, I think I think the story could be different for a professional photographer, definitely. Somebody who is, you know, doing this on a daily basis. Whereas for me, it's more a matter of I go on a trip, you know, going to Venezuela, uh, in another week, and I'll come back with a whole bunch of stuff, but then I won't do anything, you know, at least not much, in terms of generating new images for a period of time after that. Yeah, Joseph, what what about you? Your your solution with regard to keeping your stuff backed up? Um, do you have a cloud component to that? And do you, you know, say you were to move to one of these medium format cameras, do you think that you'd be <laughs> able to keep up? <laughs> well, I have a hard time keeping up to the cloud system as it is. Um, you know, at, at home I've got the Drobo running. 
and that's kind of its own backup. Um, and I am uploading to the cloud, but I still have, I think, a, one and a half terabytes to go just for that. And then when I am on the road, anything I capture goes to two locations while I'm on the road, but then it is also copying to the cloud. But like right now, if I look at my backblaze, I think that um, I think I've got uh, about 100 gigs left to upload because I've shot probably 130 gigs since I've been on the road. No, less than that because, you know, my bandwidth here is next. Great, so I've probably been able to upload maybe five or ten gigs. So there's no way that everything I've shot on this trip is going to get backed up before I get home. Yeah. And even then, once I get home, that's going to take quite a lot of time to get all that up to the cloud. So it's a it's a real cat and mouse game, and and I don't have all my images backed up there yet. I would like to be able to sit on some super fast fiber connection for a couple of days and just upload everything and get it done with. Um, but even then, I'd have to go back to that connection every couple of weeks just to keep to keep up. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a cat and mouse game and it like I was saying before, it just seems like it's getting the the uh the mouse is getting bigger than the cat in terms of yeah. being able to get your stuff up there cuz it's uh you know it, our love is to create these images and you know thank goodness for these camera manufacturers that are making better and better cameras that are have more and more resolving power which is resulting in larger 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 and larger images um but then that secret the dirty little secret is backing everything up you know because something happens and uh you know you not only lose a couple of jpegs you lose terabytes worth of of images that are irreparable or irreplaceable so right you know uh, the thing with the RAWs is like the RAWs are going up onto the cloud, and that's what takes a long time, right? Mm-hmm. And you can, of course, just upload JPEG somewhere, and that's that's a typical part of my workflow. When I've done, when I've made my selection, I've done my basic retouching. Those images will go up onto SmugMug, which is where I, you know, I host my images, and they'll go up there at full resolution. So now I have a JPEG backup of the final image, and that's great. And then if everything else goes down, they haven't been archived on Backblaze yet. At least I have that. And the final image at the end of the day is probably what's you know most important. At least I have that final image. But if I haven't done the photo edit yet, like on this trip, I certainly haven't edited all my photos. And granted, now I'm on vacation, but still, even on a job, I may not have all my photos edited, retouched, and up on the smug mug. So if my plane crashes or you know something else happens and all my gear goes and I don't have that back in the cloud yet, I, well, that's you know SOL. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's scary. It's scary. And I was talking to someone yesterday about. The uh, using the iPad as kind of the intermediary, inter- intermediary for bringing your images in when you're traveling, like like what you are right now, Joseph, mm-hmm. and where you'll be uh, next week, run. But it's not viable in terms of of if you're doing professional work, just because yeah, the iPad is a is a wonderful device, but this, it's limited on the storage side, so you, you're not going to be able to count on it to to be that repository in the dump that you go out and shoot, you put everything in the iPad and then one day, you know, when you get back from the vacation, upload it into your computer. Um, it's just not big enough for that yet. So, um, but even then you're still risking the, what happens if my bag gets stolen? My hotel room is yeah. broken into, my rental car is broken into, if someone steals my luggage, everything goes away at once. Yeah. Um, yeah, you got a problem. Yeah, yeah. So now that everyone's sufficiently scared depressed. <laughs> and depressed, yeah, let, let's talk about something that's a little more lighthearted. And that's uh, this other story that's in here. And it's about Nikon. They're rumored to be working on a, another projector camera that has video in capability. So, uh, Ron, why, why don't you talk about this camera a little bit? <laughs> Just kind of kind of set the stage before we dive into it and see if it's and, and before I say what I want to say about it. Well, the, the news article is that uh, rumor has it that Nikon is working on a, a next-generation model of their Coolpix um, 
projector camera. And people that haven't seen this, it's a little point and shoot. The current one is the S1000PJ, I think it's called. Um, and it's, you know, it's a regular point and shoot camera, but it also has a video projector in there to project an image onto a screen or onto the wall or something. Um, you know, the big question is sort of where do you use this? What, what's it for? I don't think it's particularly been a great, you know, selling device. I certainly don't see a whole lot of people walking around with these, projecting these things. And I, now, every time I read about them, I'm sort of like, what's the, what's the use case? You know, I can't really see the projector being strong enough or bright enough to project a large image where you could get 20 people being able to see it at the same time. And so then if you're just talking about a small group, is it any better than just having, you know, an iPad or a laptop or something that you can open up and show the images on that? So I, I don't quite get what the use case is personally. Yeah, I, I, well, look at that. Ron, you and I are in agreement on this. Cause <laughs> so, wait a minute. I, I, I got I to gotta change my opinion now. No, it's, uh, I, I have to agree with you totally because, you know, I, I love the Nikon point and shoots. They're great. Um, but there's, there's two pieces to this. You know, like you're saying, what's the use case for the projector, A? And then now with this new iPhone out there with, a, with an apparently really nice camera in there, um, you know, can can that even replace your point and shoot? So, kind of pushing this thing way off to the niche area. Joseph, what what do you, what do you think? I mean, you're you're traveling. You travel all the time. Do you think you'd ever find a need to have a point and shoot camera that could somehow project somewhere? Ah, that's a tough one. It, it's a neat feature. I mean, let's admit it. It's a neat feature to be able to sit down in the room and project it onto. I don't even know how big it's supposed to be able to go and, and stay sharp, but let's just say three, four foot wide image onto a white wall in a hotel room. That's kind of a cool way to look at some pictures. But the image quality from that tiny little projector, there's no way that it's going to even approach the screen on my computer or my iPad or even my iPhone. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's hard to understand why I'd want to. It seems like a really neat gimmicky feature, but eh, what's the point? And the whole thing of this new one that's being rumored is that you can plug your computer into it. So you can use the point-and-shoot camera as a projector for your computer. And again, if it doesn't get super, super huge and it's super, super bright, I'd rather look at a smaller image that's better quality on my computer. Yeah, and I, I can. This kind of makes me think of like back in the like five years ago, or even even sooner than that, with camera phones. And you know, I used to tell people that having having a, a camera on your phone. Uh, is almost the same as, or or take they're thinking you have a, a viable camera in your phone is almost the same. It's almost worse than not having a camera at all because you leave the house and you're like, you know, you're having your little daily adventure, and you think, oh, I'm covered because I have my camera with me, but when in fact you don't. So it's <laughs> you don't have a means to take a decent image. Well, now that's changing today with the you know the with the Droid camera resolution and the iPhone four and all that stuff. All that thing, all that is changing. But back then it was like, well, uh, you know, I think I have a camera with me, um, so I'm going to take this picture that's once in a lifetime shot. Um, but then you get back and you really have you know mashed potatoes. And I think the same kind of thing goes along with this. You know, you with the Nikon with this projector camera, you think you have a projector with you. Um, and you know, you're like, Oh yeah, I'll, I'll just project and I'll do a presentation for this, this group impromptu because I can plug the video out from my computer into this thing. And then no one can see it unless, you know, it's completely pitch black in the room and, and all the things are in place, you know? So I don't know. I think yeah. it, it might, Let's, might do more harm than good, but you know, I haven't played with one yet, well, but 
let's not let's not knock, knock, knock Nikon too hard for doing this because let's keep in mind, like you just said, those those cameras that were in our phones used to be absolutely useless. But now look at the quality of them, and somebody has to go first. Somebody has to do this first. And imagine, if you will, a day in the future where you have a projector built into your iPhone that is so good that you can just prop it up on your living room table and watch, you know, Avatar projected twenty feet wide. I don't and see that happening though, unless somehow somehow Stephen Hawking gets involved with the projector technology and manages to harness the power of you know like supernovas to put it <laughs> to put that level of brightness into that small amount of space. It's just I don't I don't see how you could get bright enough to project a decent image from something that small. You know? Yeah, I mean, but if five years ago I had said that you know in five years you're going to have a, a five megapixel autofocus camera built into your phone yeah. you would have laughed me out of the room i would have yeah i think i think just right it, it will get there eventually but you know I, I think it is a little ways off i i'll tell you what my take on projector technology is though and here, here's a million dollar idea for somebody who's listening out there Uh-oh. who can feel free to hire me once they uh, get that million dollars <laughs> to start it up um, but for me the thing that i can really see happening with projector technology is not as a display medium, but as a lighting tool uh, on set uh, in the sense that wouldn't it be cool if I could set up a projector and then using a little, you know, Wacom tablet and, and a brush, just start brushing in highlights and shadows onto my model um, before I take the shot or into my into my scene where, you know, I can choose to say, all right, I want to actually have this projector throwing a little bit of red light down here and shadowing this area a little bit more. Uh, I can really see that kind of thing happening. And, and there's a lot of technical issues to work out. You almost need a feedback loop where uh, when you dial something in, it can kind of react to what you've put in and, and give you feedback on the screen. You know, Because ideally, the way it would be working is you throw this projector up, you see the you know, through the camera lens what your shot looks like, and then you start painting on the image just like it's a Photoshop image, only it's a live thing. Where oh, you're that's sort of brilliant. Doing retouching prior to taking the shot so uh, you're you're modeling light real time yep um and and interacting with these different light sources real time yep uh now that's cool and i i you know i really think that actually all the technology is there to do it there's some there's some image processing that would be you know the right way to do it would be to go a little bit further and actually be able to track uh, the model a little bit. So if they moved slightly, you could just sort of have locked in on where are the eyes, where's the mouth, and you know the projector could adapt accordingly. There's tons of stuff that you could do to make this extraordinarily cool. But I really think that there's nothing there that's not technically possible. It's just going to take a little bit of R and D to put it together, a little bit of technology to put it together. So, uh, and you know, at that point, I mean, just imagine that kind of a set where you're you're going in and you're just dialing in your lighting as as if you were using Photoshop to retouch the image as a post process. Can you imagine what something like that might cost, though? That would just I be... Don't, I know. I don't think it's that much at all because these projectors are... I mean, you can get them in these little tiny point-and-shoots, but you can get a good one for a few hundred bucks, you know, plenty good enough for what you need because you don't need super high resolution for a lot of this. You're just getting light sources. A regular off-the-shelf computer can do, you know, control that because the image that's being projected out of this is just an image. Uh, you know, I, I really believe that a couple of good hackers could put something like this together for a couple thousand bucks. Yeah. Now, Joseph, you're, you, you've, you've shot models before in, in, in studio situation and product photography and all that stuff. Would you use a product like that? Interesting. It's a very interesting idea. If you could figure out a way to do it with strobes, perhaps, because 
to do what Ron's describing, if I'm understanding it, you, it's really a constant light source. It's hot light. Why, why would you need strobes? I, I would I would go for just cool fluorescents that are always on. That way you can see the modeling. Yeah. They're never bright enough. They're just never bright enough. Hey, but you just said you never know where things are going. We're talking well, fiction here. Fair right? fiction. All right. <laughs> well, and, and I mean, Joseph, if you have, you know, you take your, your high-end video projector, the kind of thing that you would buy right now to go watch Avatar in your living room, it's pretty bright. Uh, and, you know, if that, if that was your light source or if you had two or three of those as your light sources, each one being controllable, uh, I don't think it would take that much to get, get built up, especially when you look at the cost of a lot of lighting, you know, a lot of these uh, other lighting solutions. Yeah. I want Maybe. it. Ron, build it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> build it. Where, and where are you going, by the way? You mentioned you're, you're going on a trip next week. Where are you, where are you heading off to? Venezuela. <sighs> nice. Barefoot yeah. and waterfalls. That's all I see. Yeah, we'll see. It's uh, <laughs> I booked a flight and then I started doing a little more research on the place. And uh, I'm not liking the fact that it's the you know the second highest uh, homicide rate in the world right now. Oh, oh good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you were telling me a little bit about that. So you were saying that basically a lot of the crime happens between the airport and the, your main destination. Yeah, yeah that, that, was, <laughs> that was the best thing. That you know the airport to get from the airport to downtown Caracas is about a uh, half hour, forty five minute drive, and they say it's the most dangerous part of the country. That uh, <laughs> not, nice. not only you know have people been stopped and hijacked there, but they say a lot of the taxi drivers will just suddenly decide halfway there to pull over, pull a gun on you and say, all right, well, just give me all your money because that's going to be a better deal than the, the fare you're going to give me. Yeah, and you'll have all your stuff with you because chances yeah. are you'll probably have all the most expensive things with you from the airport, right? Yep, yep. Ooh. It'll be like in Iraq. You're going to have to have uh, you know, Blackwater or whatever they're called out there. To I, I know. It's practically what I'm trying to figure out. Is there somebody that can guard me on the way down to the city? I now, can almost guarantee you there is. You, you probably pay dearly for it, but yeah, that's right. seriously the most dangerous place. You may want to do that. I know. So what are you thinking, Ron, in terms of when you when you like in preparation <laughs> in terms of protecting your gear? Because you're gonna you're gonna be down there with thousands and thousands of dollars worth of gear. That's not, I would presume, not worth your life. Are you gonna bring your most expensive gear with you to get the the great images? Or are you gonna? Like bring well, you know, disposable point and shoots. What, what are you doing? I'll I'll probably you know I'll have my standard kit, which is not that expensive. You know I'm not you know super cutting edge with most of what I have. Yeah, right but compared now, so. to the the annual income of the average sure, person, absolutely, there. <laughs> absolutely. But you know, uh, I mean, at some point, yeah, you're. It's not worth your life. So if somebody says, "I want your your 40D and uh, and all your lenses," like well, here you go. I've been meaning to upgrade anyway. But <laughs> you know, yeah, it's. I mean, I'm bringing my 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 uh point and shoot as well as my dslr and you know you just kind of hope for the best and you kind of try to be smart about it and you know i mean the good thing is you know it's me and another a buddy of mine are going and we're both you know over six foot tall guys and uh probably we're not going to be the easiest target compared to some other people so you kind of hope that that's the case but yeah you never know I, the other part of it is that this is really just in caracas and i don't Hopefully, I'm not spending a whole lot of time there. That once you're out in the countryside a little bit more, your your chances go dramatically down of running into problems. Well, I tell you what, you you better come back with some stellar images after all this, because you know, after because uh, you you've started paying for these images already, just in terms of the uh, the, the sort of <laughs> the worry, the you know, and, stress, yeah. yeah, the mental stress, you know. So you better come back with some like flowing HDR waterfalls with you know yeah, a mermaid in there or something. Don't be putting pressure on me. I'm just going for a nice little vacation. Hopefully, I get some nice pictures. You're a photographer, though. You, there's no such thing. You gotta, you know, the, the obligation 
education is there. Just like you, Joseph, you're out in the middle of the, you know, Jurassic Park out there. You better, <laughs> you better be coming back with shots of volcanoes and, and dinosaurs and pterodactyls, you know, sitting on the edge of the volcano. With <laughs> oh, I, I have, I have gotten a few decent images, but let's not forget it's a family vacation. I've got my own two little private dinosaurs to contend with that here. So yeah, uh, most of the pictures have been done with a little point and shoot. So <laughs> well, you'll at least have some shots of little kids chasing wild turkeys, right? So. That is true. Or video. Very cool. All right, guys, let's jump into the listener questions real quick here. Um, and, you know, Ron, look, looks like this first question from Rob Ryan goes to you. You want to take it? Sure. Uh, Rob says, can you recommend recreational scuba, for example, a uh, 100-foot, 100-plus-foot underwater camera gear? The underwater housings for my DSLR, Nikon D90, and my point-and-shoot Canon G10 are roughly $1,300 and $600, respectively. And that's before I get an underwater flash, so it gets expensive quickly. Uh, he mentions the Sea Life DC twelve hundred is an interesting option, maybe, but it doesn't have any physical zoom or raw mode. He's not seeing a whole lot about the light sensitivity on that. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm far from an expert on this. I I've been you know I've done some scuba diving, but never with a camera. Uh, it is definitely an expensive hobby to get into. Uh, you know, the thing is, for people that haven't really looked into this, you know, you can buy these waterproof point and shoots but they're usually only rated to about maybe 10 feet 20 feet maybe a little bit more and you know, when you're diving you quickly go well past that and, you know, and the issue is the the pressure is significant down there you've, you've yeah. got you know many multiples of what kind of pressure you have and it's all water kind of pushing in on it um it does seem like the numbers that he quotes for uh some of these housings may be a little bit higher than i've seen and i think probably what i would recommend and a little bit of research that i've done in in the past on it is probably something like a housing for the Canon uh, G10. Uh, I've seen them less than that $600 number. I've seen them for more like $200, mm. uh, which is still, you know, it's not cheap. It's kind of annoying to pay for, you know, when you, when you get it, it's like, it's just a piece of plastic. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, it's a well-engineered piece of plastic with a whole lot of little uh, interesting ways of pressing the buttons on the camera from outside the camera. Uh, but, you know, when when I went down to Belize and we did some diving, the the gal I went with had an older um, housing for a little tiny point and shoot, and she actually her point and shoot it was one of the you know earlier Canon point and shoots, and uh, she had to go buy a new one because her old one had stopped working. So she ended up spending money on eBay to find uh, a camera that would fit in it, and that's part of the problem here is that as they redesign cameras, you're not going to be able to reuse the housing that you buy. Yeah, they move a move a button two centimeters to the left, yeah. and suddenly the the intricate mechanism for pressing that button is no longer working. Right? Yeah, exactly. But I, it seemed I don't know for sure on this, but it seems I read somewhere that Canon had tried to keep like the G10, G9, G10, uh, G11 um, layout similar enough that these housings may actually span multiple generations mm-hmm. that's worth kind of checking out as well you know there are these dedicated underwater ones uh, he mentioned the sea life uh, and i don't really have any familiarity with them and he's asking in particular about information about things like light sensitivity and all that and I, i'd be willing to bet that they actually oem a lot of that equipment and you know a lot of the the, the inner workings of it is probably a sensor from somebody else so you could probably do a little research and find out what it is but I don't know. I, I guess my recommendation would probably be to go with some kind of a good point and shoot, like the G10 with a housing. Try to get uh, you know, try to get one that doesn't cost too much. 
you know, Canon makes one. Canon makes a, a branded housing that's apparently fairly decent. And I know, Joseph, speaking of that branded housing, you're, you're in Hawaii with that one right now or something similar to that, right? What, what are well, you right. shooting with? It's actually my pick of the week. So um, it's the Canon D10. So I'll go into details on it when we get there. But it's a point-and-shoot underwater camera that I'm just loving. So um, that is that is another option for this user, um, for this question. And I will get into that in detail in my pick of the week. Okay, awesome. Yeah. Well, I will say for, for this user, I, I, the D10 is not rated anywhere near 100 feet, is it? No, no, no. It's like yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, whereas when you're, when you're scuba diving, you're, you're talking... Right, uh, right. You know, fifty feet kind of minimum before it gets interesting, and so yeah. So what? Have you ever have you ever lost a camera down there, Ron? No, 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 no. no. I, you know, I've seen. I mean, the other the other piece of diving with the stuff is you just obviously really need to take care of the seals on it. You need to make sure you put the, uh, you know, put a little bit of Vaseline around the uh, around the washer that uh, goes around it and everything, so that you're you very seal. careful. And even little stuff, like you hear stories talking to some of the guys on the boats, you know, you'll hear that they had a leak, and then when they opened it up and they looked at it, they, they see that a hair had been caught between oh. the, uh, you know, just, I mean, a little tiny, a human hair is enough to ruin that seal when you've got, you know, hundreds of pounds of pressure pushing in on it. Ugh, ugly. I have a buddy out here in Hawaii who's a surf photographer. That's, that's what he does for a living. And so, of course, he's using underwater housings. He's not diving, but he's out in the water. And he says, even there, he budgets um, it's either one or two failures a year that he budgets for, where he knows that he's going to lose a camera body. And he's out every day shooting that way. But yeah. he knows it's going to happen. It's, it's like riding a motorcycle. It's not, you know, it's not when you crash. It's not if you crash, it's when. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's tons of stuff. And we should probably, you know, we should probably get an underwater photographer on sometime to chat about this stuff. Because there's all kinds of issues with, you know, how tough it is to light stuff. And, you know, your fall off is really quick and there's no light down there deeper you go and you know there's the weird color shift you get because red lights filter out when it goes down there and you know, just you know using the flash it's all kinds of issues there yeah uh, yeah that's that's definitely that, that sounds like a show topic i think we'll yeah, uh, we'll make that a show topic i know a, a a good friend of mine is on the the lightroom team um is also an underwater photographer so see if i can't wrangle him to coming on and and telling us about his experiences in the deep yeah yeah all right, uh, let's take another question, and this one is for the group, and I'll read it out here. It says, um, it's from Lucas Harger, and he wants to know, he says, I'm pretty new to photography coming from a graphic design background and have worked with musicians and their artwork, be it album, poster, or t-shirt art. And because of this, I found myself borrowing my friend's cameras to shoot some band pictures. I bought the Rebel T2i with a kit lens. I know it's not the best choice, but I started listening to TWIP after I got the camera, so your depth of knowledge wasn't as accessible. Thank you. And he says, as I shoot a lot of portraits, I'm wondering what would be a good lens to enhance portrait shooting. Joseph, what do you, what do you think? Well, uh, fast. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you really are going to want that fast lens. That's that's going to be key. Um, if you're finding yourself shooting any kind of you know, band photography, low light stuff, you definitely want to have that fast lens on there. So, the Rebel T2i. Um, let me think. That's a crop. So the 50. Oh shoot! Now we're talking about the standard 50, like portrait lens, 51.8 mm-hmm. or 51.4, is going to be pretty fast. That's a good low light lens, and that's going to give you about uh, you know 80 ish millimeters in that range. Yeah. Um, you know, I use the 85 1.2 as a you know, low-light portrait lens, which is gorgeous. But on that body, that would be well over 100 mil, so that might be a little bit too tight. Mm-hmm. 
Ron, and very expensive. Ron, where, where do you where do you fall on that? It's yeah, I, standard fifty, right? Uh, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, this is I love getting questions like this because it's really a pretty easy answer. It's you know you either want to spend a hundred bucks and get the uh, the one point eight, or spend the three hundred and some dollars and get the one point four or fifty. Um, that's absolutely the you know, and the only difference being that uh, slightly faster for the one point four and a better build. Build quality isn't really the way. I mean, it, it is sort of better build quality. For me, the thing I notice is that it just tends to focus a little bit snappier as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, I mean, they're both really good lenses. So it's really just a matter of how much you want to spend. Okay, got it. All right, and here's another question up here um, that that uh, hopefully you guys have researched a little bit because I don't know where to start with this one. I'll read it out. <laughs> <laughs> it's from Adam Eck, and he says, Do you have a recommendation for taking pictures of microscopic features? I'm trying to decide between getting a dedicated USB microscope or getting an adapter to fit my SLR. Uh, onto my high school microscope. Could someone explain numerical aperture and how it influences image quality in microscopy? Joseph, you know, I'm going to throw this to you. What do you think? All right. So I did a little bit of Googling here. So I'm certainly no expert and I don't own any of this gear. But um, preliminary search here shows that you can get a USB microscope that goes up to 200x magnification for like 50 bucks. So that's really, really cheap. And now when you compare it to DSLR adapters, they seem to start at $100 and go up from there. And I was Googling around. I saw someone that were three and $400. So, and many of those are talking about still the same 200X. So unless it's something that you are doing for a living and you just want to play around with it, then I'd say go for the USB mic. It's a pretty USB, USB adapter, not mic. Right? USB <laughs> microscope. Okay, gotcha. microscope, not mic. Yeah. yeah, you know, microphone, microscope. Um, I go for the USB micro- microscope. It looks like a lot of fun, and, and seeing how cheap these are, I actually didn't realize that until I googled it. I may have to get one of those just for my kids to play with. Yeah, um, it's a really fun thing, and the cool thing here is you plug it into the computer, and it's a little handheld device, so it's not like they're carrying the computer around, right? They, they're it's just a little wired tethered. You you can follow behind them with a laptop. Oh, they can cool. point it at whatever they like. Uh, whereas a regular microscope, you know, unless you can pick it up and fit it on a slide and put it underneath the lens, you're not going to get to look at it. So yeah. I'm all over this thing. I think this is a super cool little toy. I want to get one. <laughs> telling you, I was I was born too early. I my I was a, a geek, as you might imagine, when I was a kid. Yeah. And my my parents, I mean, I had the chemistry set. I had the erector set. I had the microscope. I had the Lincoln, all that stuff. And uh, I was telling a friend of mine the other day that uh, when I got that microscope, it was a microscope kit. I still remember it was a wooden box that had hinges on it. You open it up, and there's this yep. beautiful oh, microscope yeah. in yep. there with the slides yep. and all this stuff. And when I got that thing, I was all over the house. I was looking at everything from hairs to salt grains to pepper to you know everything I looked at. And it's a whole other world. And if you can bring that into the computer, that's, that's crazy. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah, Ron, uh, you, have, I, you have anything to add to that? Yeah, well, I, I've I've actually looked at those USB uh, microscopes too, as well. And they do like like pretty cool toys. Uh, I, I would say that's probably where that line is drawn in the sense that I'd be willing to bet the sensor on there is probably giving you you know maybe one megapixel. So if you're really looking for something that uh, is you want to take images that you're going to be blowing up or showing to people or something like that, that may be where that line gets drawn. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it all depends if you just want to use it for looking at stuff versus really doing photos of things that are higher quality. And, and at that, I think that's really the line where you'd want to start looking into adapter kits. I got to believe there's probably some cheaper ones out there. Yeah. There's not much to it. It's really just replacing the uh, replacing the lens with an adapter that then you know, 
sticks into the microphone or microscope. Um, <laughs> I'm going to name this episode "Shooting Photos with Your micro- Microphone." How's yes, that? there you go. Yeah, the, the, to, in terms of his specific question, I don't know if this is what he was asking or not, but he, you know, he said something about what uh, you know the aperture and how it influences quality and all that kind of thing. And it's, it's the same deal that we get with everything else. Whereas, you know, if you uh, smaller apertures are going to give you more depth of field and, and that kind of stuff, but it's sort of a different beast on a microscope uh, given the kind of controls you have on it. Where I don't think you can typically stop down as much in that. Uh, the other thing I would say is that most of these microscopes are not... Um, you, you've got an issue of light. So unless you're shooting something that is completely still, you may find that you need to pump some more light into it, which can be challenging if you've got the head of the microscope really close to the subject. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's macro photography, right? Yep. It's extremely. All right, guys, let's jump into the picks of the week. I'm looking at the list here. It looks like some exciting things in there. Uh, Ron, you're, you're in a roll. You want to you take the first one? <laughs> sure. Well, th- th- this is kind of a throwaway because, you know, as much, I'm, I'm a, as much as anybody, I'm willing to say to people, you know, don't worry about the gear, worry about the art. But I will totally confess that it's certainly fun sometimes to think about what's the next thing that's coming out hardware-wise. So there's a couple of websites that I poke around in occasionally, um, canonrumors.com and nikonrumors.com. Uh, and they are exactly as they say. They're filled with rumors about what might be coming, um, sometimes accurate, sometimes wildly not accurate. We tend not to talk about rumors on this show at all. We sort of just made the decision way back when that unless it was an extraordinarily strong rumor, we wouldn't really try and cover it. Yeah. But uh, for people that do want to hear that kind of stuff, you can go to either of these websites, depending if you're a Canon or a Nikon guy, uh, and get some of the latest rumors about, you know, for for me on the Canon side, What's the next replacement uh, for, uh, you know, the the 7D or is there a new 3D coming and that kind of thing? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and on that, you know, I I still maintain that, you know, the time that you spent or that you spend on those rumor sites, yeah, you could be out trying out some new, some a- new absolutely and- agree. It's a total guilty pleasure of every yeah. now and then. I'm like, Ooh, wouldn't it be cool if I could get? Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's like you and your soap operas, right, Ron? You know, you gotta exactly. <laughs> <laughs> gotta, gotta see my stories. <laughs> gotta see your stories. All right, Joseph, what do you got? You gave us a you gave us a, a hint that it's the Canon D10. You want to tell us a little more about it? Uh, yeah, so before I came out to Hawaii here, I wanted to get a, a point-and-shoot camera to cover a couple of things. I wanted to get something that was underwater, or at least feel splash-proof, so I could take it to the pool, take it snorkeling, that sort of thing. Um, but I also wanted something that was durable, so I could give this camera to my daughter. Uh, the last camera that she had, she swung into a wall, and it was a short-lived experience. So I needed something that was a little bit tougher. And so I found this little D10, and, and it's a shock-proof, waterproof camera. I think it's only 20 feet or something. So it's not, you know, again, as Ron mentioned earlier, it's not a scuba diving camera, but it is a really fun little point and shoot camera. And the image quality, it's JPEG only, right, which is fine. The image quality has been really good at it. It has a full auto mode, which for my kid, of course, I've pretty much just left it there. And it switches between, you know, it does face detection for if you're shooting out of the water and shooting people. Um, it switches to scenic mode and backlit mode, all those kinds of things automatically. And it works remarkably well. Uh, and then when you want to go in water, the, my only kind of gripe about it is you do actually have to switch it into an underwater mode, which doesn't seal the camera. Obviously, it just means that, um, uh, that it actually enhances the reds. As Ron was saying, you lose your red colors pretty quickly. and enhances the reds when you go underwater. And that works really, really well. Uh, but it is a gripe that you have to actually switch it because you think the camera would be able to know that it's underwater and switch into that mode manually, uh, automatically. 
And the problem with switching it manually is when you come out of the water. So if you're just snorkeling, you go underwater, pick the camera up out of the water. Suddenly everything's very red out of the water and you have to switch it back again. So yeah. kind of my only gripe. But otherwise, the camera's been been really, really reliable. It's worked really well for this, uh, what, 10 days we've been out here. And true to form, the shockproofing is very robust. Um, I, I got to tell you, any company out there that wants to know what five years worth of abuse looks like on a product, just give it to my daughter for a week and we'll find out. <laughs> This camera has been dropped so many times. It is scratched up like crazy all over the back. The buttons are all scratched up. Part of that's just getting bashed into coral and rocks on the beach, trying to get out of the water, getting smashed around. Part of it, of course, is just plain old dropping it. Uh, but the camera's abused like crazy already, but it, it works great. It's working fantastic. Joseph, so you, you I really like it. Throw some photos of of the dinged-up camera on Flickr and the uh, and some shots from that camera on Flickr. I'd be interested to see what it, what, what it produces and what state that camera is in after... Uh, being subjected to that abuse i will do that i will do that maybe it'll be a good thing for that mystery new site that we've been hinting at absolutely absolutely remember this week in photo on twitter follow it um okay (laughs) in my that was subliminal by the way that's why i was talking in that voice So my pick of the week is um, Joseph. This is this is hats off to you again for for helping all those those starving folks out there that are that are searching for Aperture information on Aperture three. Um, you've released another ebook, fifteen tips on file management in Aperture three. So congratulations on that, and I think that's that's available on ApertureExpert.com. Correct. That it is. Thank you very much. You want to? You're welcome. Can you? And in, in, I've I've been reading it. So you want to give us a quick overview of what what's in that without making it a commercial just tell us what you know, what what <laughs> yeah, they can it's get. actually an update yeah it's actually an update from the original book that i wrote which was 10 tips on file management and in this new edition it's obviously updated for after three and um one of the tips is obsolete so that means there's six whole new tips in there so it uh, took a little time to finalize and get it out there but it is out the door so head on over and check it out on afterexpert.com there is a summary of it you can see what every chapter is and a little brief summary of each chapter before you make the purchase so check it out thank you and also i wanted to mention there's another another guy that's on the show we've had him on a couple times uh david dushman who's a is a traveling photographer and author and all he's also a comedian all all kinds of stuff rolled up into that guy but uh he has a new has a business out there that's publishing ebooks and it's called craftandvision.com that's craft and vision.com and he's got a ton of amazing ebooks on that site and they're all five bucks each so you know if you've got an ipad or a computer or whatever it's almost you almost can't afford not to go there and pull down a few and look at these things so you know between the aperture expert 15 tips and between all the books you can get on craft and vision um you know it's it, it seems to me like things are the pendulum is kind of on the the backswing towards this this ebook movement where you can get these kind of really surgical extractions of pertinent information um, and have them immediately, you know, so there's no, okay, I got to order this. I got to wait. Or, you know, even if you go to amazon.com and you buy, it, you got to wait a couple of days and it shows up and then you go through it. This is on your device. It's in your phone. It's on your iPad. It's on your computer and you can read them wherever you want. And, uh, and, and all these guys that are producing these eBooks are updating at an amazingly frenetic pace. So they're always coming out with new ones. So you're, you're always up to date. Whereas with, with print, like I've got a bookshelf run. I know right behind you right now, there's a, a book. <laughs> Bookshelf full of books that most of which I would argue, if they're if they're technical books, are probably outdated right now. Um, and with these with with these eBooks, that yeah, they get outdated. But there's another one right behind it. You agree with that, Ron? Oh yeah, uh, most of the books behind me are not technical books that are outdated. But 
Yeah. <laughs> Literature, man. Oh, wow. What's that? The, the yeah. fiction stuff? Or, yeah. It's yeah. a thing that belongs on an iPad. <laughs> All yeah. right. Well, cool, Speaking guys. literature blows on your iPad. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're at the end of the show. And uh, just a quick note, I want to remind folks to, um, to again, follow us on This Week in Photo on Twitter. And uh, we'll, we'll be using that in the next couple of days, actually, to, to give you the URL to the new place where the home of This Week in Photography will live. So uh, make sure you follow us and tell your friends to follow us and all that stuff. So, Ron, where, where are you at online if people want to follow you? You can follow me at Ron Brinkman on Twitter. Awesome. Very simple. With two N's, right? Yep. <laughs> Where'd that second N come from? I was thinking about that today. What, it's, what? it's the proper German spelling of man. Oh. M-A-N-N. And is it pronounced differently if there's only one N? No. <laughs> it's just to confuse people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Speaking of confusing names, Joseph Lenashki, where, where can people <laughs> where can people find you online? You have a name where, where no one can spell it, right? I mean... If, yeah, which is which is why that is not my Twitter at handle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where where what is your Twitter handle? Uh, you can look for me on Twitter is at Aperture Expert or on ApertureExpert.com. dot com. Very cool. And if you're looking for me, um, you can find me at Frederick Van on uh, or frederickvan dot com. That's my blog or on Twitter at twitter dot com forward slash Frederick Van. And to follow the show, we're on Facebook, of course, at facebook dot com forward slash. I believe it's this week in photography. Um, or um, follow us on Twitter, which is much more important at this point, and that's This Week in Photo, or twitter.com forward slash This Week in Photo. And with that, it is time to take that lens cap off. This Week in Photography is a Pixelcore.tv production produced by Suzanne Llewellyn with technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamankar. Content contributor is Eric Horton. 